0: the low 65. This is Illinois Public Media, W.I.L.L. 580 AM and 90.9 FM, HD3 Urbana.
1: Greetings. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today, August 5th, 2012, here at W.I.L.L. AM 580 The eyes and ears of the world are tuned into London, England this week and next week for the uh, Olympics, which run every four years. In the eyes, or at least the ears, of East Central Illinois, and thanks to the internet, much of the rest of the world will be tuned in right now to Dave Zirin, one of America's leading sports writers. We'll be talking about the Olympics, we'll be talking about the politics of sport for the full hour today on Media Matters. I do hope you'll join us. But before we go to our guest, let's go to NPR News.
2: From NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's been a shooting at a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. This town is about 12 miles south of Milwaukee on Lake Michigan. It is unclear how many people are shot or if anyone has died, but police in Oak Creek have cordoned off roadways leading to the Sikh temple of Wisconsin, and fire crews and ambulances are on the scene. People may still be inside. For the second day in a row, authorities evacuated an entire Oklahoma town because of fire. Kurt Gwartney of member station KGOU says at least 10 wildfires are burning in the state.
0: The 600 residents of Glencoe, Oklahoma, were forced to abandon their community as a wildland fire pushed into the town, burning structures and closing roads in the north-central part of the state. That fire is one of many fueled by drought-parched vegetation, high temperatures near 110 degrees, and shifting winds. Another fire in Creek County near Tulsa is being called the largest fire ever for that area. Residents of Luther, a suburb north of Oklahoma City, are being allowed in their neighborhoods for the first time since Friday when a fire that may have been deliberately set burned 45 homes. For NPR News, I'm Kurt Gortney in Oklahoma City.
2: NPR has confirmed prosecutors and the alleged Tucson Mass shooter, Jared Lee Lofner, are working out a plea deal. Lofner is charged with killing 6 people and wounding 13 others, including then Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in January 2011. The arrangement calls for Lofner to plead guilty in exchange for a life prison sentence. The International Badminton Federation says It has found no evidence that coaches and other team officials were involved in a match-throwing scandal at the Olympics. Eight players got booted from the games last week. From London, NPR's Howard Berkus reports federation officials are vague about any additional action. Leaders of the Badminton World Federation say they want to get beyond the Olympics before considering changes in the match system that prompted deliberate attempts to lose by four women's doubles teams. All eight athletes were disqualified from the Olympics, including the reigning world doubles champions. Thomas Lund, the foundation's chief operating officer, says the group wants to look forward, not back. So it's not clear whether the federation will continue to investigate allegations that players were told by coaches or team officials to throw their matches after already qualifying for advanced rounds. Deliberate losses enable the athletes to essentially select more desirable opponents. Howard and NPR News, London. Among the latest results from the Olympic Games today in London, Americans Venus and Serena Williams captured the gold medal in the women's doubles tennis final. They faced a team from the Czech Republic, which took the silver medal. Yesterday, American brothers Bob and Mike Bryan captured the gold medal in men's doubles tennis. And Serena Williams won the women's singles final, defeating Maria Sharapova to claim the gold. You're listening to NPR News. The wife of Illinois Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. says her husband has been completely debilitated by depression. But NPR's Allison Keys tells us she is expecting him to return to work. Alderman Sandy Jackson told the Chicago Sun-Times that doctors at the Mayo Clinic are trying to find out if his depression is connected to weight loss surgery, and that his body was just worn out. Jackson says her husband collapsed at their Washington, D.C. home June 10th, and they've kept him in what she calls a news blackout since then. Jackson denies rumors that the congressman was receiving help with alcohol or drug addiction. She says he's focused on returning to work, and he remains on the ballot in Illinois. The timing of Jackson's medical leave has raised questions, partly because he faces an ethics investigation in the U.S. House connected to imprisoned former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Allison Keyes, NPR News. Late tonight, NASA's new Mars probe is scheduled to descend to the surface of the red planet. The rover, dubbed Curiosity, is a fully equipped lab designed to investigate whether water or any sign of microbial life ever existed on Mars. But first... The rover has to land safely. In a descent that scientists are calling seven minutes of terror, the probe will pilot itself toward the surface of the red planet, eventually dropping on six wheels into the middle of a huge crater. Tropical storm Ernesto is sweeping past Jamaica, but pouring heavy rain on the island. Ernesto is barreling westward and is expected to gain power as it bears down on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. It may be at hurricane strength when it arrives. The National Hurricane Center says Ernesto's reach will extend south to Honduras, which will feel tropical weather effects by late tomorrow. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world.
3: More information at macfound.org.
1: Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here in WILL AM 580, based in beautiful Urbana, Illinois. Our guest today has been a frequent guest on the program. He's one of the leading sports writers and probably the leading political sports writer uh, in the country. His name is Dave Zirin. He's the sports editor of The Nation. He also hosts the XM satellite radio show Edge of Sports, and he writes a column, Edge of Sports, which you can find on the web. It's on the Sports Illustrated website. Dave Zirin, welcome back to Media Matters.
3: Oh, hey, great to be
0: here, Bob.
1: Well, you know, I know, I recall that we had you on four years ago as the Olympics were taking place, too. We've had you on a couple of times in between, but uh, it was great having you then because you've written a lot about the history of the Olympics, history of uh, great moments or infamous moments in Olympic history, and the role the Olympics plays politically in the world. So you seem like the ideal person to get back on the air at this time. And just for starters, um, any preliminary observations on the London Olympics so far?
3: Well, just that I was there for May, and that was a very good time to be there because I was able to see a lot of the pre-preparations. I was there with Dr. John Carlos, the 1968 Olympian who raised his fist on the medal stand in Mexico City along with Tommy Smith. And that provided me entry into a lot of Olympic facilities, entry into speaking to a lot of Olympic officials, um, as well as the normal work I would do, which is talk to a lot of people on the street in London about the experience of the Olympics coming in. So I do feel like that gave me a very interesting starting point uh, for understanding what the Olympics mean to a city like London, which, of course, is a very hustling, bustling a Western democracy, as well as a city that is the most surveilled major city in the world before the Olympics, actually has more cameras per capita than any major city in the world. Uh, second, I believe, is DOA, uh, to give you an idea of things. So well, the first thing um, I noticed when I was there, the first thing I noticed when talking to people, is that the national security culture, which has been the norm in London since 9-11, uh, has really, really uh, all out of control. Like, you, you, you just cannot imagine it unless you're there. Uh, the, the feeling of what it's like to walk the streets of London and see Cameras absolutely everywhere. There are more cameras there now than there were a year ago by a huge margin.
1: Yeah, let me interrupt you on that point, Dave, because it's so important. It was a little less – not exactly where I thought we'd be going, but it's a really great point because uh, I, I remember they had the uh, demonstrations protest uh, last year uh, in, in urban areas in London. And what was striking about it, as I recall, was they could go to all these cameras, basically, and see the entire thing and slow it down and pick people out. And, and really, it gave you the sense that literally everything you do in a city in that country, someone's can see.
3: And, you know, that process is still going on, actually, of police departments in Scotland Yard going through camera footage from, from the riots a year ago to pick people out to prosecute.
1: You know, continue uh, with your point. I just wanted to – because that was such an astonishing revelation.
3: Yeah, and, and it's, but that's not all, though. It's what, what, there's also a gunship in the Thames uh, that, that's, been, of course, the, the main body of water that flows through the city. Uh, there are uh, surface-to-air missiles that are fastened to the roofs, roofs of residential apartment buildings. Uh, there are surveillance drones fly, flying overhead. Obviously, you can't see them because they are drones, but that was something that was confirmed by Olympic officials. And when I said to ask them if that worries them, the idea of live drones flying overhead, they said, well, they're just surveillance drones. They're not armed drones. And what it really speaks to, the entire security culture there, is honestly it speaks to like the, the happy face version of Naomi Klein's uh, shock doctrine thesis, uh, the idea that you have something that's, that's big and strong and powerful and, and also a tad dangerous, like having the Olympic Games in a city like this, and then that's used as an excuse, as a lubricant, to bring in all sorts of things that the public would otherwise object to if the Olympics weren't in fact coming in. And so that that was very striking to be there and to see that in action, that kind of big brother security culture in a city that already experiences it to a large degree. And people obviously weren't happy about that. Particularly there, there are community meetings when I was there of several hundred on a weekly basis about the the presence. of of surface-to-air missiles on the rooftops of residential apartment buildings. And then, of course, there are the things that are associated with every Olympics that you see in London as well, and that's displacement, gentrification, uh, to go along with the security culture. By displacement, I mean people literally being removed from their homes uh, for the purposes of the Olympic Games, either to build facilities or to provide headquarters for for the media. And then there's the, the powerful corporate culture, that takes place when the Olympics are there. You know, Adweek has done studies on this that show that companies that associate themselves with the Olympics tend to be looked upon favorably, as favorable, ethical companies. To be associated with the Olympics is like stepping into lords, commercial lords, corporate lords, and stepping out of it as if you were a sin-free corporation. So interestingly, the three main sponsors of the Olympics could arguably be called the three horsemen of the corporate apocalypse. Uh, you have British Petroleum, you have Dow Chemical, and you have McDonald's. And their logos and their branding are all over the place uh, in London. And so th- these were some of the things that I saw firsthand, and they were very striking, and they were very stunning. And it's the reason why, for someone like myself, like I, I looked with a very jaundiced eye, a very cynical eye, during the opening ceremonies where you saw celebrations of things like the National Health Service, which got a lot of publicity that that was part of the opening ceremonies, because I know from being there that they're about to lay off 50,000 people from the National Health Service. David Cameron, the very person clapping for the the, the sort of patriotic display about celebrating the National Health Service at the opening ceremonies of the London Olympics, knowing that, that I, I found the thing to be, frankly, more perverse than anything to celebrate because of what's coming down the pike, precisely because of all the money that's being spent on the Olympic Games as well as the general climate of European austerity.
1: Our guest today, Dave Zyron, he has just been listening to. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. We're coming to you live today, August fifth, 2012, here in WILL. The phone lines are open if you have questions or comments uh, for Dave and the number here at Media Matters, 217 333 9455. Our toll free line is 1 800 222 9455. And Dave Zyron is well known to many of you. He's written several books, including he co authored the uh, book with John Carlos, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World. Dave's already spoken about that. We're going to talk about that a bit more later. He's written The People's History of sport in the United States. He's written also the book that we talked about a couple of years ago on the show, Bad Sports, about the role of owners in professional sports. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you with us, Dave. Good to have you today. And, you know, this thing about all the advertising and commercialism and cost of the Olympics, Who who is, who runs the Olympics? Is this a for-profit corporation? Is it accountable to someone? Do they have an elected board of directors? Uh, I mean, who gets the right to say that we're setting up the Olympics?
3: It's the International Olympic Committee, and they are – it's not even, I think, uh, correct to to conceive of them as a corporation or a nonprofit or an NGO. What they really are is like a stateless actor. Uh, Like, you know, the IOC actually has non-voting rights but does have a seat at the United Nations. It actually has a seat at the UN. Hmm. And what the IOC is able to do when it goes to a different country is it literally establishes sovereignty in that country, not figuratively, but literally.
1: So it's like a IOC, Va- floating Vatican City?
3: It, it Very much so, very much so. Like, imagine if Vatican City, if it was uh, Dow Chemical presents Vatican City, and, and you get an idea of the power of the IOC. I mean, just to give uh, one stray example of that, uh, from the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, uh, that there is a law in the Canadian, that's uh, Canada's version of the Constitution, And their their law uh, states that you have to provide uh, equal opportunity for men. And you cannot discriminate against women on the basis of gender, as in the Canadian Constitution. And uh, so people use the Canadian Charter, women athletes, to say women should have the right to be part of the ski jumping competition at the Vancouver Olympics. The IOC said, no, there will be no women who will be doing uh, the, the ski jump. And they pressed the Canadian government, and the Canadian government actually released this startling statement where they said, the Canadian charter does not have sovereignty in this situation, the IOC does. And for a lot of people, that was like, wow, that's the first time uh, it's ever been stated so clearly, something which we've all known to be the truth. And you've seen that again in these Olympics in 2012 in an incident that I wrote about uh, where an Australian boxer of, of aboriginal descent named Damien Hooper, uh, who's a threat to win the light heavyweight gold, he was threatened with being sent home from these Olympic Games because he wore a black t-shirt in the ring with an aboriginal flag on it, the aboriginal flag on it, uh, the indigenous Australian flag. And that flag is actually recognized as an official flag by the country of Australia. It is not the official flag, but is recognized as an official flag of the country uh he was threatened with being sent home uh by the international olympic committee uh his years of training would have been dashed because the international olympic committee does not recognize that flag as an official flag of australia and the ioc's rules are, uh, run run the show including to the point in which the australian olympic committee instead of defending uh damian hooper actually called him out on the carpet and issued this embarrassing statement about hooper's great regret and tears in his eyes and all the rest of it Uh, None of which we know is even confirmed, but basically they humiliated and embarrassed Damian Hooper uh, for the broader purpose of just showing who who was the big dog at this particular table and that it would be the IOC and not, in fact, uh, Damian Hooper.
1: Our guest today, Dave Zyron, we're talking to a Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Uh, Dave, you love sports, obviously, as a fan, as an athlete yourself, uh, amateur athlete, as someone who just enjoys uh, what athletics are all about, yet you're also quite critical of the way sport is organized in our society. I think anyone know, who's listened to the show today or read you or heard you in the past gets that. One of the things you like to write about are what sometimes you call political athletes, athletes uh, who have a... Uh, importance that extends beyond their success on the playing field. Uh, and, you know, one of the athletes you've written about recently in that light uh, is Gabby Douglas, the phenomenal gymnast who won the gold medal uh, at the London Olympics. Talk about this notion of political athletes and then a little bit about Gabby Douglas, if you would. No, absolutely.
3: I, I wrote about in my piece about Gabby Douglas. My starting point was just so people wouldn't think I was trying to impose some sort of political representation on Gabby Douglas that that she did not want or ask for, Uh, Gabby Douglas being the first uh, African-American woman or any person of African descent, for that matter, uh, to win the individual uh, gold uh, in in women's gymnastics, Um, as well as the first gymnast period to win both the individual and be part of the team gold at the Olympics. I mean, what an incredible accomplishment. Um, especially for a 16-year-old who, as recently as a few months ago, was described by Marta Caroli, the coordinator of the U.S. women's team, as an average, if not good, gymnast. Uh, that's how she was. That's that was her reputation as of about six months ago. So well, I her, guess
1: that's rapid improvement.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, uh, and I, I wouldn't. <laughs> frankly, I mean, I, I wouldn't trust the Carolis to to, to house sit a goldfish, um, <laughs> let let alone um, describe. Uh, a female gymnast to me. And, and frankly, just let me say quickly, like one of the things I found particularly striking about Gabby Douglas, that she was the only female gymnast who didn't look like she was either a hostage or had had her, her was in some sort of state of horrible mental distress or abuse. They I mean, really, I mean, people, I think I'm not trying to be glib at that at all. People should read a book called um, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes by Joan Ryan, who is a terrific sports writer about what young girl gymnasts actually go through and are put through. Um, as they go through the paces of being made um, into an Olympic uh, hero. And I think one of the things that's made uh, Gabby Douglas particularly tough and, and resilient in this process is that she's had to be tough and resilient. Uh, her story is one that's really about, I mean, if we want to look at it uh, in a way that's actually helpful and evocative, it's really one about segregation in the United States. I mean, we, this is very little discussed, but we live in a profoundly segregated society, profoundly. And Gabby Douglas is someone who the, really, the, the, the freight that she had to pay to become an Olympic athlete was to navigate that segregation. Uh, she grew up in an African-American community in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I've been to Virginia Beach before, um, it, like it is an African-American community, um, working class mother, uh, multiple siblings. And she had to travel to West Des Moines, Iowa at the age of 14, leave her family. Her family could not afford to move with her, of course. And she had to live with a host family, a white host family in West Des Moines, who she had never met before. She was homeschooled by this family for the for the next two years, uh, while she trained in a sport, which, uh, in the United from the United States perspective, is overwhelmingly white. And and so and she navigated all of this, and including at times, actually wondering and on like, as only a teenager would, if she might be in fact the only black person in the state of Iowa, uh, and and really wondering. that. And, this, and obviously issues about music and, and you know, not you know, all the country music being played and feeling like nobody really understood her or understood where she was coming from. And she navigated all of this and wasn't beaten down by either the homesickness, the loneliness, the alienation, the segregation or the racism, was, was beaten down by none of it. And that, to me, makes it a political story. And that gets back to your original uh, point, is that I really do believe there are two kinds of political athletes. There are two categories of political athletes. And I would be very hesitant to say one is, in fact, more important than the other. The first category are the athletes like Muhammad Ali speaking out forcefully against the war in Vietnam or Billie Jean King marching for Title IX, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising their fists, Uh, These are athletes who use the platform of athletics to make explicit political statements. I mean, put Damian Hooper in that category, too, for wearing the aboriginal flag going into the ring. But then you have the athletes who are political because of what they represent on this high stage. And it can feel unfair sometimes to impose politics on folks who have expressed no desire to embrace politics. And yet that is the role that they play. I mean, whether or not... Jack Johnson wanted to be political. The mere fact that he was the first African American heavyweight champion made him political. Whether or not Martina Navratilova wanted to be political when she played tennis with a with a power and, and a muscular sh- uh just representation that women's ath- athletics had never seen before, uh that was in fact political just by the sheer fact of her being. You could put the Williams sisters, hell, you could even put Tiger Woods in this category even though he would be the last person to embrace any kind of political role and actually has been quite the political reactionary indeed, but his his representation, his personhood uh, is is political just by the fact of existing. And I think the same thing will happen when we have a a male LGBT athlete come out of the closet in one of the major sports. It will be a political act, even if they have no desire to be political. And I think you can put Gabby Douglas in this category as well, uh, very confidently in this category, because she broke barriers and to have someone like bob costas uh speak about it in a way as if it was like like wow we've really entered a post-racial america because we we don't we're not even discussing the fact that she's black that's what bob costas effectively said after she won her gold um to me is much more about nbc imposing a narrative on the situation as opposed to the reality of what it means in 21st century america i mean which I mean, I would argue racism, structural racism, institutionalized racism uh, continues to be a pernicious, pernicious force uh, in this country.
1: Our guest, Dave Zyron, who you've just been listening to, he's a political sports writer, sports editor for The Nation, author of numerous books, including co-author of The John Carlos stories, John Carlos author of the book Bad Sports, which he spoke about on this show a couple years ago, A People's History of Sport in the United States. He also has a radio show, Edge of Sports Radio, which can be heard Uh, weekly on XM Satellite Radio, and he writes a weekly column. You can find it on the web. Just go Google or enter into search engine Edge of Sports or Dave's Iron. You'll come up with uh, the list of his recent weekly columns and the whole archive. Uh, A rich uh, portfolio of material there for anyone who's interested in sports and a critical take on sports. The number here at Media Matters, 217-333-9455, toll-free 800 222 9455. Five. There's so much I want to talk about, with you, Dave, and I suspect we're going to have some callers who are going to come in too. Uh, issues I want to talk about. And I, I want to get back to the Olympics later, but I do want to talk about uh, football, because uh, football training camps are opening right now. And it strikes me, and I, I want to get your take on this, we haven't spoken about this before, that what is going on with uh, the whole sport of football in general, but particularly in professional and college football, on the issue of concussions and head oh. injuries, uh, is really threatens to uh, the, the whole existence of the sport in a way nothing has for 100 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so that's what's ab- your take ab- on that. You're absolutely, absolutely correct. I mean, this is, I mean, first, the starting point for even talking about this is has to be that football is by a large, large margin the most popular sport in the United States. Uh, that's just the, an objective fact. Uh, the most watched uh, television event in the history of this country was the last Super Bowl. And the second most watched is the Super Bowl before that. The NFL is the most popular sport in terms of viewers. The second most popular sport is college football. And its audience, and this is a remarkable thing, just as a cultural phenomenon, Bob, that we have to say, is that its audience in a time of more cable channels, the Internet, Facebook, in other words, a more splintered uh, American audience, its audience has actually gotten bigger um, over the last decade, It's just really remarkable. And it's especially remarkable when you, can, when you think about the fact that football is stubbornly resisted throughout the world. I mean, so much of American culture gets exported uh, with relative ease from music to Hollywood to basketball, as another example. And yet there is stubborn international resistance to embracing the game of American football. And because of that, its market is also very confined and limited to these 50 states. And that means that this concussion issue is huge. It's massive, and it threatens this $9 billion yet projected earnings of $20 to $30 billion a year industry. And I'll tell you one, one thing that just occurred this past year. Statistics came out that 1 million less parents signed their kids up for football this year than they did the previous year. Now, that works out to about 9% of youth football players. That's actually a huge number when you consider that the sport is actually growing on a year-in, year-out basis. And I think the reason for that is everything that you said. I mean, it's not just the concussions, but it really it's the suicide of Junior Seau, who played for 20 years in the National Football League and was a future Hall of Famer, the suicide of Dave Dorson, a former NFL player, the suicide of Ray Easterling, Uh, who was the lead plaintiff on this class-action lawsuit involving head injuries and over 2,000 former NFL players. And just in the last week, we saw the suicide of O.J. Murdoch, who's a wide receiver for the Tennessee Titans. And you have doctor after doctor, talking head after talking head, linking depression and suicidal tendencies to the long-term effect of concussions. And the thing that really worries parents and the thing that threatens the pipeline of talent and threatens the National Football League is the realization that it's not the hard hits that create these kinds of concussions and future mental illness and early onset alzheimers and dementia Thanks. it's not those bang you know espn jacked up kind of hits it's just the slow steady repetitive hits over the course of a game and that the studies show that that applies whether you're talking about the 7 and 8 year olds playing or the nfl so it's not about force, it's not about speed, it's not about strength, it's about repetition, what are called subconcussive hits. And that's what makes it so dangerous, and that's what makes it so scary. And that's what makes parents so nervous now, and that's what makes, frankly, NFL players. Every time I interview an NFL player, I ask them if they want their kid to play in the NFL. And I'll tell you something, some of them say yes, some of them say no, but these days, all of them think about it all of them actually take the time to think and and really be like, gosh, I don't know if I want them to play football because we know what the cost can be. And I'll just end with this. The thing that also makes football so different from other sports because of what we know now about the concept of subconcussive hits, the thing that really makes football different is that there is no way to make it safe. I mean, other sports have concussion issues. But football is really the only sport, and I will include boxing in this, and I will include mixed martial arts in this. I would say that football is really the only sport that's kind of like a cigarette. And you could take a cigarette and give it a bigger filter or make it have less tar, but it's still a cigarette, and it's still dangerous. Just like football is inherently a dangerous proposition.
1: So it is not reformable in in your view, Dave Zirin.
3: No, it's not reformable, and that certainly. And I'm not one of the people who thinks that. Like there are people like Malcolm Gladwell, who've stepped forward and actually talked about the abolition of football, that it should be a prohibition issue. Um, I disagree with that for the same reasons. Frankly, I would have disagreed with prohibition in the first place. That I don't think it's an effective way to actually deal with it. But I do think that it is a sport that is not reformable. And while I am definitely not for prohibition of it, I think the question about whether or not tackle football should be banned as a health risk for, for example, kids under 14. Uh, that neuro- We're learning more every day about the neurology of that and about the injuries that take place before uh, the brain is developed to the point of being 14 years old. Uh, this is real, and it's going to be an ongoing and evolving story as the science develops over in the years ahead.
1: Here's a crazy idea. What if they just said players couldn't wear helmets?
3: You know, it's funny you mentioned that. But I actually think that that would be effective.
1: Oh, yeah, because um, rugby, uh, you learn the first time you play it to keep your head out of the mess so you don't play it again.
3: No, I would actually think that would be effective. I mean, I think that um, if, if you go back to the leather helmets of the days of yore, you would be – two things would happen. One, you, it would be the end of players using the hel- – like, you know what they say, like sticking them with the helmet. Uh, you know, you would that, you would end that whole prospect of the helmet being used as a weapon, which actually is more often than not going to hurt the person using it as a weapon as opposed to the person who's getting hit. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing, and this is just crazy, but wearing the helmet actually increases the risk of brain injury uh, because you're protecting the exterior of your face. So it's like if you got hit really hard in the head and you were bleeding, you'd be taken out of a game. But if a helmet stops the external bleeding, and yet you're bleeding, bleeding internally, then who's really going to know that? Well, you're going to know that if you have a headache, but if you've been schooled in this hyper-masculine ethos of football that says that to say that you're hurt or that you have a headache or that you have a concussion and that's equated with weakness, or you could lose your job, uh, then you're, you're going to sit on that and not talk about it. And so the internalizing of the injuries while keeping the external features uh, you know, like, like normal looking uh, is really is one of those things that, that adds to the risk factor of playing football.
1: Our guest today, Dave Zirin, we're talking about sports here on W I L L 580. The phone lines at Media Matters are open 217-333-9455, toll free 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to our first caller has been waiting patiently. Line one, Champagne. you're on the air with Dave Zirin.
0: Uh, yeah, you were talking about political athletes, and um, I was just watching MSNBC and Jessica Ennis mm-hmm. and how she won the uh, heptathlon. And um, and in, in the last race, uh, I think it was an 800-meter, 800, 800 it looked like uh, her competitors kind of were easy on her at first and just brought up the question, was she uh, – is she really the genuine article? Uh, did she really have a competitive field uh, working against her or, or, or not? Since she's British, it, it seemed possible that, you know, they were letting her glide through. What's your opinion? Well, it's
3: an interesting question. I mean, I, I think it's less about – I mean, people who work to get to that point, they're not going to let anybody win. Well, unless they're badminton players, and there's an incentive built in to let their opponent win, but that was more a, a quirk of how the International Olympic Committee organized badminton. But in that particular case, you got to keep in mind that if that was the heptathlon, and so it's an accumulation of scores. And so she really only needed, uh, she did not even need to do very well in that 800 meters, and she still would have won the heptathlon. The person who was second in that race, I believe, would have had to beat her by 12 full seconds. Uh, which just would not have happened um, for, for for her, the person who was running second to win the heptathlon, and so I, I think you may have seen at the end a bit of pulling up to give her the ceremonial first place finish because she had so like profoundly outpaced the competition, but I think that's about as far as it would go.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, caller. You know, let's talk a little bit, if we can, about. Um, John Carlos, who you wrote the book with and you've traveled with and know well. Uh, I think I have some listeners who probably are vaguely familiar with uh, what happened in 1968 and its significance, some who know a lot about it and some who probably don't even know about it at all. So maybe you could just recount uh, what the 1968 Olympics were like, the, the environment, and what John Carlos and Tommy Smith did.
3: Well, sure. I mean, the first thing I would just say is that Uh, A lot of people know the moment, but they may not know the movement. Uh, People know the moment. People have seen it in history books. People have seen it on T-shirts or posters. Uh, The image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos defiantly raising their black fist to uh, to the heavens uh, wearing a black glove uh, in the 1968 Olympics. But a lot of people who I've I've encountered and who John has encountered uh, really see the moment abstracted from a movement and see it as just sort of an abstract, general, call to arms. Or, like, this was 1968, and, you know, there was all these protests in the streets, and that was just a symbol of the movements that were roiling outside the athletic arena. And that's certainly true. Obviously, that influenced why they did what they did. But they did what they did because, very concretely, they were part of something called the Olympic Project for Human Rights. That really stood on a set of principles that were very connected to the worlds of sports and politics. Like, They wanted to see Muhammad Ali's title restored. Uh, his title, of course, had been taken away because of his opposition to the war in Vietnam. They wanted to see South Africa and Rhodesia, which were both apartheid countries, permanently excluded from the Olympic Games. Uh, they wanted to see more African-American coaches hired. At the time, there was only one assistant coach in, in all of the U.S. Uh, track and field. And lastly, Uh, this was the one that was really the most dangerous for them to take up, is they wanted Avery Brundage to be kicked out of his perch as head of the International Olympic Committee. I mean, this would have been the equivalent in 1968 of people saying, we want J. Edgar Hoover removed from the head of the FBI. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was a very daring move against an all-powerful person who uh, figuratively knew where all the bodies were buried. And by doing that, and by calling out the history of Avery Brundage as somebody who has a history of white supremacist and Hitler sympathies, who was responsible for delivering the 1936 Olympics to uh, Hitler's Germany, that that was very daring. And then the last thing, which was just very daring in general, is if you look at the statements that they were making, is they were. This is very dangerous. I mean, you can imagine if even in today, in 2012, imagine if Gabby Douglas did something like this. They said that. They didn't like the fact that their Olympic success would be used at the Olympics in front of an international audience to an, to export a lie about the United States—that somehow the United States uh, was a place that was not. They didn't use the phrase "post-racial" because the phrase didn't exist at the time, but that's effectively what they were saying. They said like as if racism was something in the past. And uh, the, you know, people say, "Oh wow, well these guys won gold. That means there must be opportunity." Uh, for all African Americans, equal opportunity in the United States. Now, imagine if, if Gabby Douglas said something like, um, like, people might think that we're in a post racial world because Obama's president and I want a gold. Well, guess what? There's somebody named uh, Trayvon Martin out there who tells a different story. You know, imagine, imagine if that had happened. Imagine what Fox, I mean, Fox News was criticizing Gabby Douglas over the weekend because she wasn't wearing the red, white, and blue festoon gymnastics outfit. So it's like people are kind of nuts in general when it comes to talking about racism and bigotry in this country. And these guys did it on the biggest possible stage, and I think the reason why it resonates so strongly to this day is precisely because A, it was incredibly daring, and B, they were on the right side of history. I mean, who the heck now is going to say, no, South Africa and Rhodesia deserve their seat at the table. Avery Brundage was a great person. So they, they really were ahead of their time in terms of the issues they were trying to bring to light.
1: You know, Back in the 1960s, and you've written about this, uh, you've written about Muhammad Ali at length. Uh, but back in the 1960s, there was sort of a famous summit in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, to support Muhammad Ali when he was uh, facing criminal charges from the government for refusing uh, to go into the military. And uh, at that summit were Jim Brown uh, of the Cleveland Browns and Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics. Unquestionably at that time, the two best athletes in the world in their respective sports, some would argue still to this day, remained that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but they came out forcefully uh, in Muhammad Ali's support. And, you know, could would anything, I mean, that is, I mean, it's so unusual in American sports history. Has there ever been anything like that before or since?
3: Wow. Uh, Well, it's really interesting because I don't think there's been anything like Muhammad Ali, period, before or since.
1: But even Jim Brown and Bill Russell, what they did in in that same period.
3: Yeah, it was definitely, you had this thing known as the revolt of the black athlete, which you still have political athletes, but I think what made the, the late 60s so different is, as you said, these are also the best athletes in their sport. So while today I could point out political basketball players to you or political football players, players who say political things, who do political things, Uh, the idea that you have the people who are the best of the best doing it, Uh, Remember Lou Alcindor was at that same conference that you're referring
0: to, Mm -hmm. who was
3: without question the best college basketball player, you could argue that to ever live, the best college basketball player. So, I mean, just a remarkable confluence of, of skill and platform and politics all coming together at the same time in the late 1960s. And, of course, not a coincidence that they were riding the crest in confidence of a black freedom struggle that was taking place. Um, Very interesting, like this past year, like the fact that the Miami Heat all stood together with their hoodies on uh, in protest of what had happened to Trayvon Martin, and the fact that George Zimmerman still at that time had not been arrested for his shooting. But they didn't do it by accident. I mean, there were something like 40 walkouts of South Florida high schools alone. So you had, uh, it's like knowing where the cart is and knowing where the horse is is very important. And I think that you could see something like that again, but it would take you know, a, a real seismic period of struggle and social movements to see that happen.
1: Yeah, our guest today, Dave Zirin, the sports writer, uh, joining us for the full hour. If you have any questions, feel free to call in at 333-9455, toll free, 1-800-222-9455. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here in WILL. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left, time for callers if someone wants to call in, and lots of stuff to talk about, barely scratched the surface of what I wanted to get at, and One issue that you've written about a lot, Dave, uh, that's been in the news, of course, has been uh, the Penn State-Jerry Sandusky scandal. And you've written about that uh, also in the context, I think, of just the general corruption of college sports and the exploitation of college athletes. So give me your take on the penalties against Penn State and sort of the state of major college sports.
0: Oh,
3: I mean, I think it's an absolute sewer at this point. And I think the thing about Penn State, which is so jarring, is that you really do see just how low the floor is, because there's always been this question about, wow, what would a big-time football program be willing to cover up for the purposes of protecting the Golden Goose, for purposes of protecting its brand, and for purposes of protecting just the flow of not just money from the football program, but image and endorsements and television contracts. What really would they be willing to abide? And we've seen the willingness to abide um, hookers. We've seen the ability to um, abide, um, like, hooking up uh, players with all kinds of drugs and jewelry and money and all the rest of it. And in Penn State, you see the the most respected coach in the history of the sport being willing to abide um, a serial child predator, and that's really jarring. Because it just shows you just how deep and nasty the the abyss actually is of what is the gutter economy of college sports and how incredibly twisted uh, revenue-producing sports have become on on the landscape. Now, I'm somebody who opposed strongly the NCAA's recent sanctions on Penn State because, honestly, I think the problem starts with the NCAA. And when they're allowed to actually ride in on the white horse, and act like they are the defenders of the morality of a system that's utterly amoral and that keeps creating these kinds of scandals, then all you're doing is ensuring more scandals to come. So when you have a situation like this where to me you look at Penn State and clearly this is a situation for the civil and criminal courts. I mean if people in power were covering up child abuse and child rape then they should be held to account and they should be sent away and people should sue that school for every cent they can get. But when you have a situation of the NCAA, which is a private entity, a nonprofit with a president who makes $1.6 million a year and has 14 vice presidents, each of whom make at least $400,000 a year, and they are entering a public institution like Penn State and taking $60 million out of this public institution, then I think you're dealing with something that's frankly very frightening and very reminiscent. We talked about this earlier with regards to the Olympics, but it's once again reminiscent to this idea of the shock doctrine, where you take something so horrific, like the Jerry Sandusky scandal, and you're able to then manipulate that and use it in a way that's uh, profoundly undemocratic, because people's minds are still spinning, and there's this thirst for justice, no matter what guys it takes. And it's, it's a very scary set of uh, circumstances. And so it's my position. I think some people have had some problems with it as I've been publicizing it. But, I mean, there's no book big enough that can be thrown at Penn State. But at the same time, the NCAA is not the body that should be codified with the ability to do that.
1: Our guest, Dave Zyron, we have a bank of people wanting to ask you questions or make comments. And before I get to them, I want to finish up this discussion of major college sports, a very important issue, clearly, at the University of Illinois, uh, as it is at many large campuses uh, in the country and smaller ones, too. You wrote a column very critical of college sports, big time college sports, not too long ago. And you talked about Urban Meyer, the football coach now at Ohio State, getting, I believe, a $4 million a year contract or something. And you contrasted it, and it was very jarring when I read it to the legendary Ohio State football coach from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Woody Hayes, probably one of the... probably the Joe Paterno of his era in terms of being the most recognized college football coach in the mm-hmm. nation. And at his peak salary was $40,000 a year in the late 70s mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he retired. And, you know, <laughs> 1% or is it one tenth of 1% of what Urban Meyer is making? What does that say about college sports, and do they even belong on, on campus? The, no, the question I mean, should it be asked. Talks
3: about how. I mean, that's the thing that's so um, upsetting about it to me is, like, Look, you can go back 100 years and find W.E.B. Du Bois writing about his concerns about the corrosive role of big-time sports on a college campus. So this concern is nothing new. But at the same time, over the last 40 years, there has been a profound, profound change in the, in the power relationship between these revenues, revenue-producing sports and the college campus that's exemplified in the comparative salaries of a Woody Hayes and an Urban Meyer. I mean, the amount of money that it brings in, the amount of money in terms of fundraising that a big-time coach can provide, the fact that at most state schools, the football coach, sometimes the basketball coach, but more often than not the men's football coach, is going to be the highest-paid public employee in the state. I mean, I go back to what Gordon Gee, who's the president of Ohio State, what he said uh, when uh, they had their scandal there, he was asked if he's going to fire Jim Tressel, and he said, I-, "I should just hope that Jim Tressel doesn't fire me." <laughs> and the- so everything is so out of whack on these campuses, and yet the one thing that hasn't changed—you know—the stadiums are now massively bigger. The-, the TV contracts are hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars. The coaches have gone from 40 grand to four million dollars a year. The-, 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 the size of the staff is so massive it's ridiculous um, but the thing that's really the thing the only thing that stayed the same through all of this is that we still have this concept of the student athlete and the player who isn't paid and that to me is the root of all evil of everything that we're talking about if the players were just made it's too big to fail and too big to derail And so while I want to see the NFL have its own minor league, that's probably unrealistic. But as long as you have college football players who aren't paid like the campus employees that they are, and let's face it, that's what they are. They are campus employees. As long as they're not paid, you have a recipe for scandal, because what you have instead is the setup of a gutter economy. So why does a player choose the school that they go to? Well, maybe it's because they, they know at one school they can get out of taking classes. Maybe at another school they're promised sex. Maybe at another school they're promised money under the table. Maybe at another school they're promised strippers. Maybe at another school they're promised carte blanche to party as hard as they want. Maybe at another school they're promised a toboggan ride to the NFL and a way to take steroids and a way that boosts their prospects. You see, so everything operates below board, and none of the players feel any hesitation about flouting these rules for the simple reason that the whole system is so hypocritical. Why should they feel any moral compunction whatsoever when you so clearly have a system that's set up to exploit them within an inch of their lives? That's why in one column I said, like, like players are like this uneasy combination of campus gods and chattel at the same time. It's like this dual campus existence of being an indentured servant but also being on this pedestal that's ridiculous for any student to be on. And I think the only way to get them off that pedestal, the only way to make the system sane, is to regulate it, codify it, pay them a fair wage based on the revenue that's produced. And until you do that, you're going to keep having these scandals. And it's not to say that there wouldn't be scandal without this, but at least in this case, you have a mechanism and a basis for enforcement of law instead of what you have now.
1: Our guest, Dave Zyron. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. We have three callers who've waited patiently. Let's end the show by letting each of them get a chance to make their uh, question or comment. Let's start with line one. Urbana, you're on the air. Dave Zyron.
0: Hi. uh, Discussing athletic safety, I think the most dangerous incident that can occur is a mixed martial arts when an opponent gets knocked down and he's laying flat on his back, unlike boxing where if a person takes a direct straight jab, his head will rock back and that will absorb some of his uh, some of the blow. But a person that gets knocked down in mixed martial arts, he can be laying flat on the canvas. The opponent can jump on him, and if he delivers a straight blow, His head has got no place to go. If it's a hook, yeah, it can swivel, but his head has no place to go if he gets a direct blow, and I'm just afraid that somebody's going to get killed in that process.
1: Well, thank you very much, caller. Dave Zirin?
0: Uh, I think you could make a strong case that mixed martial
3: arts is far safer than boxing or football or even hockey. Uh, because one of the things about mixed martial arts is that direct blows to the head are stopped almost immediately, and you're not wearing gloves, so there's actually only there's only so hard you can punch with a bare fist because your hand contains a lot of very small, very tiny, very delicate bones. I mean, only in the movies do you hit someone in the face repeatedly without breaking your hand, and that's actually what, it's like what we were talking about before, Bob, with the helmet. Mm-hmm. Like conversely, boxing would actually be much safer if they went to bear, back to bare knuckled boxing. I mean, it would be more disgusting, without question, but there would also be far less of the kind of repetitive blows. I mean, people would be much more mangled facially (laughs) as well, but in some ways, at least that's more honest,
0: Yeah. because it's
3: like you don't see the blows on the face as much when you're hit with a big, flat glove, but your brain, like a piece of gefilte fish inside the jar, just keeps sloshing back and forth against your skull. And that, believe me, when you're, when you're 55 years old, you'd much rather have a broken nose and cauliflower ears than you'd want to have the kind of brain that gets repeatedly smashed against the side of your skull.
1: So I take it, Desire, and you wouldn't let your children play football?
3: Uh, I, I, you know you what, know, I'll tell you this because it's very interesting. My, my father-in-law, my wife's father, was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. And in the last year, he has gone from saying, absolutely my grandson needs to play football to saying, please don't let him play football. So it's not even about what I would allow. It's like the the right-wing football-loving edge of my family tree <laughs> has stepped forward to say, yeah, you remember all that pressure I was giving you about him playing? Well, let's try to find something else.
1: Let's go back to the phone lines now. Line three, Urbana, you're on the air with Dave Zyron.
0: Oh, um, given that... Uh the host nation at the Olympics, as often as not, fails to profit from the Olympics. In fact, usually it loses money. That the siting of the venue is normally a low-income neighborhood, which is bulldozed. And when the Olympics are finished, it's replaced with a high-rise uh, luxury apartment complex leaving the uh, original residents out in the cold, uh, why don't the powers that be uh, select a permanent site, I would su- uh, suggest Greece, the original home of the Olympics, and just leave it there? It would eliminate rebuilding every four years. There would no longer be the uh, uh, insane bidding for the Olympics by cities and countries, and it...
1: um, Well, that's a great question, Caller. Let's let Dave Zyron answer that. Dave?
3: Uh, You're preaching to the choir on that one. That's a revenue that I've been putting forward for several years. uh, That that I think that when you look at the ways that a lot of these Olympic facilities have no use value once they're built, uh, then you create a situation where it would really make a lot of sense to have a permanent site for the games. And the fact that Greece, since it's had had its austerity crisis, a lot of its Olympic facilities have become de facto squatter communities uh, with homeless people living inside them, Uh, so the recently homeless, to be clear about that. And so it would make a lot more sense. The problem is that the Olympics are just a one-percenter paradise. I mean, it is a neoliberal Trojan horse that allows for the kind of wholesale gentrification that, like I said at the beginning, people would oppose otherwise uh if they had half a chance. Uh but when it comes in the guise of the Olympics and the guise of what the writer Jules Boykoff called celebration capitalism, it becomes a lot easier to push through. So that's the reason why there won't be a permanent site because there are too many world leaders bidding for the right to do it and too many corporations that want to be a part of it uh, when it goes to new markets, like in China for example, where it was a huge opportunity for market penetration by corporations that hadn't been able to get in before. Uh, but what you're talking about is a way that we could have the Olympics and also lessen uh, the disruption and the pain that, that actually is engendered on ordinary people's lives when the Olympics come to town. And I would support it with, uh, with, 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 you know, with bells on, although that is just a saying.
1: Let's go to our final caller now for the day. Line 4, Peoria. You're on the air with Dave Zyron.
0: Hello. Talking about uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. I remember those days. And I wondered what happened, whatever happened to Dr. Harry Edwards, who was their mentor.
3: Who well, I was, I was just on the phone with Dr. Edwards a week ago, so I'm well equipped to tell you that. Um, he is retired, but he is a professor emeritus at Cal Berkeley. Uh, he has a he's does uh, speaking engagements and and consulting uh, throughout the world. He has a tremendous place of esteem as really being the founder of modern sports sociology, which is now a discipline that has its own department, or at the very least is part of departments like history or kinesiology at schools around the country, uh, actually around the world, really. And so Dr. Harry Edwards is doing, is doing really, really well and is, is recognized for the fact that he was really ahead of the pack in terms of seeing how important sports was as a lens for understanding the broader world.
1: One of the criticisms of sports in the United States, and probably everywhere or elsewhere, but certainly in the United States, maybe peculiarly in the United States, Dave Zirin, is, you know, Americans are obsessed with sports. They follow sports. uh, It's this huge deal. And it also is a society that is less politically oriented, that people substitute concern for politics with an obsession with following uh, sports, and sports leagues, and sports teams. I suspect you've heard this before. I'd like your uh, response.
3: Well, there are certainly people who say that sports is an opiate of the masses in a lot of ways, re- the way religion was at one point. And for people who say that, my, my first response is always to say, and, and your problem with opium is what now? <laughs> because, you know, it's a life is tough. And frankly, I, I see nothing wrong with the fact that people look for means to escape. It's hard to think of something that would be more human than people after a very tough and dehumanizing day trying to find something with which to relax with. But the other thing that I would say to that is that I think that people really do miss the boat if they think that when fans are involved with sports, they're not doing something political because there's so much politics in sports. There's so much political engagement that happens through the language of sports that there is a real opportunity to engage people on more substantive political issues through sports whether you're talking about the issue bob that you've written about a great deal which is the public funding of stadiums or whether you're talking about the role of racism or or homophobia or sexism in sports i mean all of the we just passed the 40th anniversary of title nine i mean there are so many so many rich opportunities to talk about politics through sports heck just recently um... You had a a member of the Palestinian uh, national soccer team uh, released from an Israeli prison where he was engaged in a hunger strike. And it really was the solidarity of FIFA, of all things, the international soccer body, which got Israel to release him. He'd been held without charges for almost three years. Uh, So these are things that are political acts.
1: Dave Zyron, I hear the band tuning up the background, which means they're going to clear me out of studio. One quick question before we go. If you could only watch one sport for the rest of your life, which would it be?
3: Uh, For the rest of my life, it would be the beautiful game, the real beautiful game, and that would be basketball. Men's, women's, don't care. Just love the game
1: of hoop. You and I are on the same page, brother. Dave Zyron, I guess to the immediate Manners a pleasure as always to have you, Dave. Uh, Keep up the great work. I'm Bob McChesney. I want to thank Christina Williams, my uh, wonderful producer, Kyle Croho, my engineer, and everyone at WILL for their support. Be back in 167 hours. Until then, everyone have a great week.
0: Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. Partly sunny this morning, a slight chance of showers Then sunny skies this afternoon, the high 88 degrees. Cooler and clear tonight with a low of 58. Sunny tomorrow with a high of 85. Monday night and Tuesday mostly clear with a low of 62 degrees. The high 88. Mostly clear Tuesday evening.